Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you P.D. James's The Skull Beneath the Skin, where private detective Cordelia Gray is invited to the sunlit island of Corsi to protect the vainly beautiful actress Clarissa Lyle from veiled threats on her life. Within the rose-red walls of the fairy tale castle, she finds the stage set for death. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. Come, violent death. Serve for Mandragora to make me sleep. Go tell my brothers when I'm laid out. They then may feed in quiet. Where's the waiting woman? Fetch her. Oh, you are damned perpetually for this. My turn is next. Is not so ordered? Yes, and I'm glad you are so well prepared for it. You are deceived, sir. I am not prepared for it. I will not die. Come, dispatch her. I will not die. I must not. Delays. Throttle her. If you kill me now, I am damned. I am quick with child. Why, then, your credit's saved. (laughs) Is she dead? She's what you'd have her. The Skull Beneath the Skin by P.D. James. Dramatized by Neville Teller, with Greta Skaki as Cordelia Gray, John Moffat as Ambrose, Norman Rodway as Whittingham, Carolyn Blakiston as Clarissa, Richard Vernon as General Ralston, and Patricia Garwood as Roma. The Skull Beneath the Skin, Part One. Measured it carefully from the ground. Honestly, Miss Gray. I know you did, Bevis. It's it's the pavement. It must be uneven, that's what it is. Oh, we should have bought a spirit level. My fault. That nameplate, isn't it rather crooked? Yes, it is, I know. Tompkins? That blessed kitten's off again. Excuse me, Miss Gray, I'd better catch him. Why not get the job done properly? Here's the chap to go to. Give him a ring. Say I sent you. That's me on the front. Oh, you're very kind. Sir George Ralston, Bart, DSOMC. Tell me, are you a connoisseur of nameplates or just a public benefactor? Actually, I'm a client. If that is your Cordelia Gray, are you? Yes, I am. Then why do you call yourself Pride's Detective Agency? Because, Sir George, we were set up by an ex-metropolitan policeman called Bernie Pride. I see. I worked for him for a time, and then he made me his partner. When he died, he left me the agency. In that case, shall we go in? Hmm. After you. You'll have some tea, Sir George? Please. Milk, no sugar. Uh, no biscuits. Tea for two, please, Miss Maudsley. Of course, Miss Gray, at once. Don't people ever tell you that... That it's uh, an unsuitable job for a woman. They do, and it isn't. I was going to say, don't they ever tell you your office is extremely difficult to find? Oh, Well, that's the idea of the nameplate. 
I'm not sure that a crooked nameplate isn't worse than no nameplate at all, especially in your business. Your founder, how did he die? He cut his wrists. Oh, did he? Here we are. Tea. Thank you very much, Miss Maudsley. Just there. There we are. Uh, by the way, is Bevis back? Oh, yes, Miss Gray. He caught Tomkins. Ah. Oh, thank you. Tomkins, Sir George, represents a sort of investment. He turned up and attached himself to Bevis, but we're banking on restoring him to his distraught owner once we've discovered who he belongs to. Ah. We've built up a reputation for reuniting lost pets with their owners. Uh, I know. That's how I came to hear of you. My wife was having tea with a Mrs. Fortescue last week when you returned the Fortescue cat. Ah. You'd found the brute within 30 minutes. You could have charged three times what you did. I gather she's devoted to the animal. Expensive we may be, but we are honest. Well, my wife was terribly impressed. What with? Our efficiency or our charges? Both. That's why I'm here. Yes, Sir George. The job I'm offering is part bodyguard, part private secretary part investigator and part, well, nursemaid. No knowing how it may turn out. I'm supposed to be a private investigator. Uh, no doubt, but it doesn't pay to be too purist these days. In any case, you could find yourself involved in detection, though it doesn't seem likely. Perhaps you could explain what exactly you want me to do? My wife is the actress Clarissa Lyle. I thought I recognised her at Mrs Fortescue. She hasn't worked much recently. Ah, we married in June 78. I'm her third husband, by the way. In July 1980, she was playing Lady Macbeth at the Haymarket. On the third night, she received what she saw as a death threat. These threats have continued intermittently ever since. And what form exactly do these threats take? Typewritten notes, each one headed by a small drawing of a coffin or a skull. All of them are quotations from plays my wife has appeared in, and they all deal with death in one form or another. The fear of death, the judgment of death, the inevitability of death. But they don't specifically threaten her. Well, she sees this harping on death as threatening. She's sensitive. Actresses have to be, I suppose. They need to be liked. These notes, do you have them? Uh, here. Uh, the ones she kept, anyway. The first ones were thrown away. Aye, but to die, and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot. Measure for measure, isn't it? Not exactly a personal threat, though. Uh, perhaps not, but not very friendly. You know not how to live nor how to die, but I have an object that shall startle you and make you know whither you are going. Oh, I don't know that one. Webster, do you think? Uh, possibly. How do they arrive? By post, most of them. A few were delivered by hand at the theatre or our London flat. The first half dozen or so were destroyed. These 23 are all we have now. The first one of all, the one that came when your wife was playing Lady Macbeth, what happened? She can't remember now what it said. She threw it away, thought it was an isolated bit of malice. Then a second came, and a third, and a fourth. My wife started breaking down on stage, had to be prompted. No. On the Saturday of the third week, her understudy had to go on. It was quite a struggle to get through the six-week season. And then the same thing happened in her next role. The first quotation appeared on the morning the play opened. It came off after four weeks. 
and my wife's performance may have had something to do with it. She thought so, anyway. And then? And then Clarissa didn't act again until she accepted a part in Webster's The White Devil at Nottingham. Victoria or something or other. Victoria Corombona. Was that it? Mm. I was in New York at the time. I didn't see it. But the same thing happened. The first note arrived the day the play opened. This time my wife went to the police. Not much joy. They took it away, thought about it, and brought it back. Sympathetic, but made it obvious they didn't take the death threat seriously. They did discover one thing, there. That particular note had been typed on my own machine. Which is that note? Here. We've dated them on the back. This is the time I was in New York. On pain of death, let no man name death to me. It is a word infinitely terrible. This skull and crossbones, Sir George, not quite the same assured touch as the others, has it? And the typing's a bit amateurish. What do you think? You may be right. Could have been done in a hurry. You still haven't explained how you think I can help. I'm coming to that. This weekend, my wife is to play the lead in a production of The Duchess of Malfi. Oh. It's taking place on Corsi Island. Do you know it? About mm. two miles off the Dorset coast. Mm -hmm. The owner's Ambrose Gorringe. It's been in his family since the last century. His grandfather restored the medieval castle in the 1880s. He used to play host to the Prince of Wales in his circle. Edward would arrive with his mistress, Lily Langtry, and they all amuse themselves with amateur theatricals. <laughs> There's a lovely little Victorian theatre there. The present Gorringe seems intent on restoring castle and theatre to their former glory. And you want me to go to the island and be with Lady Ralston? I was hoping to be there myself, but that won't be possible. I have a meeting in the West Country which I can't miss. But she needs someone with her. Mm. This performance is important to her. They're doing the play at Chichester in the spring, and if she can regain her confidence, she might feel able to join the company. Ah, I see. But there's uh, more to it than that. She's got hold of an idea that the threats may come to a head this weekend. Oh. In fact, that someone might try to kill her on Corsi Island. What makes her think that? Nothing she can explain, but it's what she feels. She asked me to get you. And what precisely am I being employed to do, Sir George? Protect her from nuisance, take any calls, open any letters, be on call at night, and bring a fresh mind to bear on these messages. Find out, if you can, who is responsible. You'll take the job? Yes, I'll take it. A little different from finding lost cats. Your rates will be rather higher, I assume. And the daily rate is precisely the same, Sir George, whatever the job. The final bill depends on the time taken, and any expenses, of course. But as I'll be a guest on the island, they shouldn't be too high. By the way, I'll need to know who else will be there. Well, by the Saturday afternoon, when the cast and the audience have all arrived, there'll be about a hundred. But the house party itself is quite small. My wife, of course, with Tolly, Miss Tolgar, that is, her dresser, then is your host, Ambrose Gorringe. Tell me about Mr. Gorringe. There's not much to tell. He's known my wife since they were both children. Their fathers were in the diplomatic together. Middle-aged, unmarried. Read history at Cambridge, I believe. Authority on Victoriana. Spends a good deal of time and money building up his collection. I'll take these, and probably the marble as well. Ah. Where did you find it? A private sale, Mr. Gorringe. 
According to the owners, it's a duplicate of one of those marble limbs of the royal children at Osborne, uh, the ones commissioned by Queen Victoria. Mm -hmm. They told me this was the arm of the Princess Royal with a baby. Oh, I haven't been able to get down to the Isle of Wight to check. Oh, poor little Vicky. What a life she was to have. What with her mother, her son, and Bismarck. <laughs> it's almost irresistible. Ah. But not at that price, Mr. Gaskin, not at that price. Oh, it's probably unique. I don't know of any other duplicates of the Osborne marbles. You know, this arm must weigh almost as much as the princess herself. <laughs> It's a pity we don't know for certain. I tell you what, Mr. Gollinge, I'll let you have it less, uh, uh 15%. Uh, that's cutting my profit to shreds. <laughs> you don't like it. Well, I can't say I'm sorry to see it go. A child's arm and cut off like that. Whenever I look at it, I keep imagining it's oozing blood. Hmm. All right, I'll have it. Ah. I must try it on my house guests next weekend and watch their reactions. <laughs> We're putting on the Duchess of Malfi, you know. Mm. Oh, uh, really? Uh, will uh, theatrical productions become a regular event? No, I think not. Upsets the household. Uh, I've already had to reassure my butler that this is a unique event. Now, if this were a full-size male hand, we could use it for one of the props. The play features an amputated hand. Oh. As it is, I'll just have to put it on display somewhere in the house. And I think I have the ideal spot. He inherited the island from an uncle in 77. He was spending a year outside the UK at the time, something to do with tax avoidance, I believe. Came back to England in 78 and has spent the last few years restoring the castle. Mm. Who else lives on the island? Well, he has three servants. The butler is called Munter. Mrs Munter acts as housekeeper. And then there's Oldfield, the boatman and general factotum. And this house party, who has he invited besides Lady Ralston? Well, there's Ivo Whittingham. Well, the theatre critic. You know him? Not to speak to. I, I know of him, of course. He's supposed to be doing a piece about the theatre and the performance for one of the colour supplements. Ah. Quite an honour for God, really. Whittingham doesn't do much writing these days. Rather ill, I gather. Uh, you can get dressed now. Is that spleen troubling you? Uh, since I look and feel like a lopsided pregnant woman, yes, you could say it's troubling me. Well, time may come when it's better out. No hurry, though. We'll have another think in a month. I thought you said the spleen's enlarged because it's taken over producing the red blood cells which my blood's no longer making. That's uh, more or less what's happening, yes. When one organ ceases to function, another tends to take over. Yes, sir, would it be tactless of me to inquire, Sir James, which organ will oblige when you've whipped out the spleen? <laughs> well, let's cross that bridge when we come to it, eh, what? <laughs> On pain of death, let no man name death to me. It is a word infinitely terrible. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Whittingham, I didn't quite... Uh... Yeah, nothing, Sir James. I was merely quoting Webster. Actually, Whittingham's an old uh, friend of my wife. She'll be pleased to have him around. Who else is coming? There's uh, Roma Lyle, my wife's cousin. Roma. Used to be a schoolmistress, but now keeps a bookshop somewhere in North London. Mm -hmm. Unmarried, about 45. I don't know her very well. We've only met once or twice. She might bring her partner, but if so, I can't tell you who it is. <coughs> 
My God, Roma, this place stinks. It won't once we get it cleaned up. Clean it as much as you like and it'll still look what it is. A basement slum. Oh, God, look at these books. I mean, nine-tenths junk. They should be burnt. Colin? Oh, look at this. Hmm? It fell out of one of the books. What is it? Some kind of old woodcut. <laughs> Shouldn't think it's worth anything. We could ask Ambrose Gorringe when we get to the island. He knows about these things. Yes. I like the skeleton at the top. And I suppose the arrow and the hourglass must mean something. The great messenger of mortality. It's a good caption. Fair lady, lay your costly robe aside. No longer may you glory in your pride. Take leave of all your carnal vain delight. I've come to summon you away. Tonight. <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> it puts me in mind of Clarissa. Clarissa? Why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, give it to me. I'll, uh, I'll ask Ambrose Gorringe about it. It was a mistake buying this junk. We should have stuck to the new stuff. And God knows why I let you talk me into buying all that left-wing garbage upstairs. No one wants it. There are enough cosy left-wing haunts already in this neighbourhood and it's putting off the other customers. I must have been mad. Look, Colin, you didn't take on this place simply to please me. You loathed teaching just as much as I did. And I wouldn't have resigned if you hadn't made the first move. You mean it's all my fault? All? What all? It was a mistake. Well, you chuck it. Stella will be delighted. My God, she must be praying for us to go broke. It's a wonder she doesn't lurk outside, counting the customers. That's not quite fair. She's my wife. She's a right to be worried. I mean, half the money I put in here was hers. And that, my dear Colin, was the cleverest move she ever made. She made sure that you had enough money to make the business possible, but not enough to make it a success. I'll bet Daddy was behind that. She wants you back, Colin. Can't you see that? Back, neatly trussed like a sacrificial victim to be handed over to dear Daddy and the family business. Oh, she's shrewd, is Stella. A sharp little mind to go with those sharp red nails. Oh, do shut up, Roma. We've been through all this twenty times. Oh, darling, I'm sorry. Don't let's quarrel. We're tired, we're hot, and it's a bloody day. Yeah. On Friday, we shut the door and take off for Corsi Island. Three days of peace, sunshine, good wines, first-class food and the sea. No creditors, no people, just peace. And my God, don't I need it. Roma... I'm sorry, I... Oh, no. No. Oh, you can't do this to me. You promised. And I told Clarissa I'm bringing my partner. It's all arranged. I am sorry. Honest. But Stella's father phoned this morning to say he's coming for the weekend. I've got to be there. I've told you what he's like. I'll never hear the end of it if I'm away on a long weekend, leaving her to cope with the kids. Daddy... In other words, the twin school fees, the car and the package holiday. Oh, don't knock it. Oh, what's Clarissa going to think? Well, what would she think if I did come? She knows I'm married. Wouldn't it look rather odd? 
The two of us arriving together. Oh, Clarissa isn't exactly a model of purity. And I don't suppose Ambrose Gorringe creeps down his corridor at night checking on where his guests are sleeping. The point is, I was planning to speak to Clarissa this weekend. Tell her about the shop. Ask her if she could help. That's why I wangled the invitation. After all, a third of her money comes to me if she dies without a child. It's all in Uncle's will. It wouldn't harm her to part with some when it's most needed. We'd only be asking for a loan. I couldn't ask a woman for money. You wouldn't have to. I'd do the asking. I hoped she'd meet you, like you. Then I could speak to her. Even 30,000 would make all the difference. How much would you get if she died, then? I'm not sure. About 200,000, I think. It could be more. To be quite honest, I'm not sure why Roma Lyle was invited, unless it was a gesture on Gorringe's part to please my wife. And those are all the guests? As far as I know. Except for Simon, of course. Simon? Oh, sorry, Simon Lessing. He's 17, the son of Clarissa's second husband. Tell me about him. Well, his father was drowned in August 1977. After that, he wasn't happy living with his relatives, so Clarissa took him on. Mm. We've sort of adopted him. I'm not sure why he's invited either, come to that. Music's his interest. Clarissa probably thought it was time he met more people. He's rather a shy boy. One last question, Sir George. Lady Ralston is apparently so frightened for her life that she's reluctant to be on Corsi Island without protection. Is there any one of that company she has reason to fear, to suspect? You can put that idea out of your head, Miss Grace. She has no reason to suspect any of the house party of wishing to harm her. No reason in the world. Right. I had to ask. Now, when do you want me to arrive? Your tickets are in this envelope. Oh, Thank you. Uh, my wife has telephoned Gorringe to tell him she's bringing a secretary companion. You go down to Spamouth Jetty, the mm -hmm. launch from Crossy will be waiting to pick you up. Fine. You'll go over with the other guests. It's quite typical of Ambrose Gorringe just to send Oldfield in the launch and leave his guests to introduce themselves. <laughs> I'm Roma Lyle. Clarissa's cousin. How do you do? My name's Cordelia Gray, but I'm not a guest. I'm going to the island to work. Good Lord, Ambrose isn't writing another blockbuster, is he? Not as far as I know. I'm employed by Lady Ralston. By Clarissa? Doing what, for heaven's sake? Oh, dealing with her correspondence, making phone calls, generally easing things along while she concentrates on the play. She's got Tolly to ease things along. Well, what does she think of it? Tolly, I mean. I haven't the least idea. I haven't met her yet. Well, I can't see her liking it. You'd best meet Clarissa's stepson, Simon Lessing. He's probably nearer your age than anyone else on this benighted weekend. Simon, over here. Come and say hello to Cordelia Gray. She's Clarissa's secretary. Clarissa said you'd be coming when she wrote. How do you do? I had to get special leave. From school? Yes, Melhurst. My housemaster wasn't too pleased. I don't really know why I've been invited. Does there have to be a reason? A few days break, a little swimming? Uh, with Clarissa, there's usually a reason. Of course, she told me to bring some music. You're a pianist? I play the piano. He's very good. Clarissa likes showing him off, doesn't she, Simon? Does she? 
Oh, I just hope I don't make a fool of myself. You're discussing the perennially fascinating topic, Clarissa. Hello, Ivo. I was just saying she rather enjoys presenting Simon to her friends. Have you ever been to Corsi Island before, Simon? No. No, then she's out to impress Ambrose Gorridge. Don't let her down. <laughs> Do I know you? No, I'm Cordelia Gray. Are you taking part in the play? I'm here to work. I'm Miss Lyle's secretary, her temporary secretary. Now, that makes sense. Clarissa's relationships tend to be temporary. Do you know anything about the performance? Who's taking part? Oh, didn't Clarissa explain? They're the Cottringham Players, said to be the oldest amateur company in England. They're based in Spamouth. Very convenient. Ah. They'll all be coming over by launch tomorrow. Look, we turn the headland in a second. You all see the castle. Oh, my goodness. That's beautiful. It's just as though the castle was rising from the waves. Impressive, isn't it? All that rose-red brickwork soaring to the sky. Oh, but it's so light and graceful. Not what I associate with Victorian architecture at all. You're interested in Victorian architecture? Well, interested, but not at all knowledgeable. I shouldn't tell Ambrose that. He'll devote the whole weekend to your education. Is that him? Waiting for us at the jetty? Uh, that's him on the left. And there's Clarissa. Darling! Darling, I'm Hello, Clarissa! I'm afraid I'll have to ask for your help, Miss Gray, in getting ashore. I seem to be as weak as a kitten these days. Of course, days. Mr. McKinnon. Hello there. Welcome to Corsi Island. Hello, Ambrose. I'll get ashore first. I'll give you my hand. Ah, uh, thanks. All right. Thank you. Oh, Clarissa, my darling. Enchanting as ever. My poor Ivo, what's life doing to you? Uh, taking its toll, darling. But you seem to have negotiated rather special terms. How do you do it? Roma, my dear. It's been ages. Too long, Clarissa. Aren't you bringing someone with you, your partner? Something unavoidable cropped up, I'm afraid. I'll save him for another time. Do, darling. Come on, Simon. Don't lurk back there. Come and be introduced to Mr. Gorringe. Ambrose, darling, this is Simon. Welcome to Corsi. I've heard a great deal about you. Hello. I'm looking forward to hearing you play. Oh. Come on, Simon. I'll show you your room. And you must be Miss Gray. Welcome to Corsi Island. How do you do? Mrs. Munter will look after you. We've put you in a room next door to Lady Ralston. Uh, Mrs. Munter! This is Miss Gray. Hello. I'm Lady Ralston's new secretary. If there's any post for her, it must come to me first, and I'll take any telephone calls for her. Well, Opal's just brought a package of posts across in the launch, miss. Would you like to look through it? Oh, if you don't mind, thank you. Just these two. I'll take them. Of course, miss. If you'll come with me, miss, I'll show you to your room. Oh, what a magnificent hall. The staircase. The gallery. Oh, that tapestry. A genuine William Morris, miss. You must feel quite privileged living here. It takes some getting used to. The cleaning's no joke. Oh, but to live surrounded by all these beautiful things. Oh. 
That stained glass is quite breathtaking. The eastern window was commissioned by the original Mr. Herbert Garange in the 1860s. It portrays the travels of Ulysses. So I see. Do you often show visitors around, Mrs. Munter? I do act as a guide from time to time. Please follow me. And this is your room, miss. Oh, but this is delightful. The tiles are originals by William de Morgan. The mahogany and pine cabinet was painted by William Morris, Mm. and the paintings are by John Ruskin. What time would you like your early morning tea, miss? Uh, half past seven, please. Thank you, miss. Is that you, Miss Gray? Uh, Oh, here you are. Our rooms connect, as you'll see. Come in here, will you? Tolly will see to your unpacking. Oh, thank you, but I'd rather do my own. As you wish. This is my dresser, Miss Tolgarth Tolly. Meet Miss Cordelia Gray. Uh, hello. She's come to help with my correspondence. Just an experiment. She won't be in anyone's way. If she wants anything, look after her, will you? Of course, Miss Lyle. I suppose we'd better talk. But it can't be now. Mm-hmm. That extraordinary-looking man, Munter, set lunch in the dining room, but I told him we shall eat on the terrace. Ah. That means there's time before lunch for Ambrose to give us all a quick tour of the castle. Shall I fetch Simon? Oh, there's no point him trailing round after us. He can go for a swim. And this is my chamber of horrors. Meet my notorious Victorian murderers and murderesses, mm. all modelled in Staffordshire pottery. Do they tie up with this display of gallows literature? Yes, indeed, in some cases. This pair, for example, are the infamous Maria and Frederick Manning, hanged in November 1847 before a crowd of 50,000. Charles Dickens saw the execution and wrote that the crowd's behaviour was so indescribable that he thought he was living in a city of devils. And this elegant gentleman? William Calder, aiming his pistol at poor Maria Martin. Uh Note the red barn in the distance. Oh, yes, yes, of course. He might have got away with it if her mother hadn't repeatedly dreamed that her daughter's body was buried in the red barn. The most gruesome part of the whole collection's over here. Nasty little mementos of murder. But quite fascinating, Clarissa, darling, you must admit. Don't you agree, Miss Gray? Quite extraordinary. Yes. That tag end of rope, for instance. Now, that's part of the rope that hanged Dr. Thomas Neal Cream. Uh, You know, the Lambeth Poisoner, in November 1892. The stained linen nightdress was worn by Constance Kent. Oh, not the one she had on when she slit the throat of her small stepbrother, unfortunately. But, um, well, it, it, it has a certain interest, all the same. That pair of handcuffs with the key were used on young Courvoisier, who murdered his master, Lord William Russell, in 1840. And the, the marble of the baby's arm? Ah. No criminal interest, as far as I know, but um, it doesn't look out of place somehow. The man who sold it to me would approve. He kept imagining that the limb was oozing blood. But it's perfectly hateful. It's disgusting. It may be the only extant copy of one of the limbs of the royal children made for Queen Victoria. Mm. And if you dislike this, Clarissa, you should see the Osborne collection. They look as if the prince consort had descended on the royal nursery with a machete. It's repulsive. What on earth possessed you, Ambrose? Get rid of it. I didn't expect to see you, Tolly. What on earth are you doing here? Is anything the matter? Here's your towel. Oh, thanks. It's not all that warm. 
Why did you come down? Why don't you leave? Leave? Why don't you leave this place? Leave her. Leave Clarissa? Well, why should I? What, what do you mean? Well, she doesn't want you. Haven't you noticed that? You aren't happy. Why go on pretending? But I am happy. Where could I go? My aunt wouldn't want me back. I haven't any money. There's a spare room in my flat. It's only small. It used to be my daughter's before she died. You could have that for a start. It isn't much, but you could stay there until you found something better. But how could I find somewhere? What would I live on? You're 17, aren't you? You're not a child. You could find something to do. But what? I'm going to be a pianist. I need Clarissa's money. Ah, yes. You need Clarissa's money. In any case, I'm perfectly happy as I am. Suppose she gets tired of you, like she did of your father. What do you mean? She loved my father. They loved each other. He explained to me before he left my mother. Clarissa was the most marvellous thing that had ever happened to him. He had no choice. There's always a choice. But they adored each other. He was so happy. Then why did he drown himself? It's true. I don't believe you. Don't, if you don't want to. But just remember what I've said when your turn comes. But why should he do it? Why? To make her feel sorry, I suppose. Isn't that usually why people kill themselves? But he should have known. Clarissa doesn't understand about guilt. There was an inquest. They found it was accidental death. And he didn't leave a note. If he did, no one saw it. But then, it was Clarissa who found his clothes on the beach, wasn't it? Yes. Suppose she died. What would you do then? Why on earth should Clarissa die? She isn't ill, is she? Well, she never said anything about being ill. What's wrong with her? Nothing's wrong with her. Well, then why talk about dying? Because she thinks she's going to die. And, you know, sometimes when people think that strongly enough, they do die. Bring me the casket hither and the glass. You get no lodging here tonight, my lord. Indeed, I must persuade one. Very good. I hope in time it'll grow into a custom that noblemen shall come with cap and knee to purchase a night's lodging of their wives. I must lie here. You must. You are a lord of misrule. Indeed, my rule is only in the night. To what use will you put me? We'll sleep together. Alas, what pleasure can two lovers find in sleep? My lord, I lie with her often, and I know she'll much disquiet you. See, you are complained of. For she's the sprawling... Um, the sprawl... Oh. The sprawling... Oh, I'm sorry. I am sorry, Mr. Deville. For heaven's sake, Cariola, you've only got three lines to remember. Oh. Do cut out the coyness. You're not playing no-no Nanette. I'm frightfully sorry, Mr. Deville. All right. Take it from the top. Oh, must we? Every time we go back, I lose the impetus. From the beginning. Please. This bloody box is driving me mad. If we have to have background music in this scene, and God alone knows why, then surely Ambrose can find something more suitable than those damn Scottish tunes. It was your idea, darling, as I remember. Brilliant touch, too, since we're in Victorian costume. It was a musical box I wanted, not a medley of Scottish airs. And do we have to have a bloody audience? Cordelia, can't you find something useful to do? God knows we're paying you enough. Do you propose to sit on your ass all afternoon? Yeah, Miss Gray and I will take a walk. The performance hasn't been exactly riveting so far, and the air outside will be fresher. 
Come along, Miss Gray. Thank you, Mr. Whittingham. No, don't mention it. Uh, this may be a stupid question. Gray isn't an uncommon name, but uh, you're not by any chance related to Redvers, Gray. He was my father. I thought there was something. It's the eyes. You know, he had a great influence on my generation at Cambridge. Yeah. He had the gift of making rhetoric sound sincere. And now that the rhetoric and the dream are out of fashion, I suppose he's forgotten. But I should like to have known him. So should I. Ah, like that, was it? The old story. Revolutionary idealist dedicated to mankind in the abstract, but not much good at caring for his own kid. Mm. Uh, not that I can criticise. I haven't done too well with mine. I think I should have liked him if we'd had time. I did spend six months with him and the comrades in Germany and Italy. And then he died. Uh, you make death sound like a betrayal. <laughs> what about your mother? She died when I was born. Uh, another betrayal. So, uh, who looked after you? Foster parents, most of the time. Then when I was 11, I won a scholarship to a convent. Oh. That was a mistake. At uh, school, not the scholarship. They mixed me up with another C. Gray, who was a Roman Catholic. <laughs> I don't think Father liked it, but by the time he bothered to reply to the education officer's letter, I was settled and they didn't like moving me. I wanted to stay anyway. <laughs> Red was Gray with a convent-educated daughter. And did they succeed in converting you? That would have taught Papa to answer his letters. No, they didn't convert me. But then, they didn't try it. Ah, oh, oh, look out, Mr. Whittingham. Oh, you're tired. Here, let's sit down for a while. Over there. No, I liked it in the convent. I suppose it was the first time I felt secure. Life wasn't messy anymore. Yes, yes, it must have been reassuring. Even one's sins neatly classified. These <laughs> venial, those mortal. Mortal sin. It has a note of splendid finality, hasn't it? It almost dignifies wrongdoing. I suppose a mortal sin has to be something really special. It's a grievous offence against the laws of God which puts the soul at risk of eternal damnation. In other words, something really evil. If, that is, you believe in the existence of evil. Oh, yes. I believe in the existence of evil. In that case, there's something you should know. Clarissa once did something you might dignify as evil. And I have a feeling that for Clarissa it could prove mortal. Are you sure you want to tell me this? Quite sure. I think it may help you in what you're here to do, or whatever that may be. Very well. It happened during the run of Macbeth in July 1980. Tolly, Miss Tolgarth, had had an illegitimate daughter four years earlier. Well, there was no particular secret about it. Most of us knew about Vicky. A really sweet child. Tolly brought her to the theatre occasionally, but usually the girl was at home with a childminder. That's how it was when the tragedy happened. The tragedy? It was two days before the opening. Clarissa was at the theatre and the minder was in charge of Vicky. The child had slipped out into the street and was playing in the gutter behind a parked lorry. The driver didn't see her and reversed. Oh. She was horribly injured. They rushed her to hospital and operated, and she stood there very well. We all thought she'd make it. But during the opening night of Macbeth, the hospital telephoned to say there'd been a relapse oh. and to ask Tolly to go at once. Tolly always answered the phone in the dressing room, but by pure chance, 
Clarissa took the call. She'd just come off for her back-free costume change. The banquet scene, you know. She, oh, yes. she put down the receiver and told Tolly that the hospital wanted her to visit, but that there was no hurry. Oh. After the performance would be all right. Uh, Tolly wanted to ring back, but Clarissa wouldn't let her. Shortly after the curtain came down, the, the hospital rang to say the child was dead. My God. Well, how do you know all this? I was there, in Clarissa's dressing room, when the first call came. Uh, you could say I had a um, rather privileged relationship at the time. Uh, when the play ended, I went backstage to take Clarissa out to supper. Tolly was still there then. It, it was a few minutes after we left that the hospital rang. Oh. We were all appalled when we heard the news. I, I took the trouble to get in touch with the hospital and ask about that first message. And when you learned what had happened... Was that when you stopped being a privileged person? I should like to say it was. But the truth is, Clarissa dropped me when she discovered that her sexual favours were not an automatic guarantee of my literary ones. Like most men, I'm capable of betrayal, but not that particular sort. She found she couldn't buy favourable notices from me on tick. Who was the child's father? No one knows. Except Tolly, presumably, and she isn't saying. The question is, who did Clarissa think he was? Not her own husband, surely. At that time, it was Lessing, Simon's father. Poor, besotted fool. He and Clarissa had only been married a year. No, no, my guess is our respected producer, Adrian DeVille. Oh, you mean the man directing the Duchess of Malfi here? The same. Was Clarissa in love with him? I don't know what Clarissa means by that word. She may have wanted him. He was around at the time. Why is he here? He's famous. He doesn't have to bother with an amateur production. Why are any of us here? Hmm. It's possible he sees Corsi Island as a future dramatic line-born. Ambrose could make something of his Corsi festival if he's prepared to spend money. Mm -hmm. Not commercially, of course, but he could have some fun with it. Once he's got rid of Clarissa. And does he want to get rid of Clarissa? Oh, yes. Hadn't you noticed? She's trying to take him over. Him, his theatre and his island. He likes his private kingdom. Clarissa is a particularly persistent invader. I don't see how Clarissa can live with the memory of that child's death. I'm not sure she can. When a person is terrified of dying... It could be because with one part of their minds, they feel they deserve it. How do you know she's terrified? Because there are some emotions which even an actress as experienced as Clarissa can't hide. Look, there are explanations. It was the first night. She mm. was totally immersed in the part. She was Lady Macbeth at Dunsinane Castle. She was all keyed up for the banquet scene. I doubt whether she'd have left the theatre at that moment to go to her own dying child. It didn't occur to her that someone else might want to. I don't see how Miss Tolgoth can go on working for her. I couldn't. But you will. I confess, I'm intrigued about your precise function here, but uh, presumably you won't throw in your hand. That's different. I'm just a temporary employee, but Tolly believed her when she said the child wasn't in immediate danger. She was robbed of sharing her daughter's last moments on earth. How can she stay with Clarissa? They've been together almost all their lives. Tolly's mother was Clarissa's nurse. The instinct for worship is remarkably persistent. 
Though she slay me, yet shall I trust her. A perfectly well-documented phenomenon. But if, like any of us, come to that, she ever face the truth about her own feelings, ah, then, I admit, I do wonder what would happen. Roma, darling. Yes, Surely we didn't frighten him away. I thought you wanted to show him off. Why else did you angle Thank for an invitation? <laughs> Who are you ashamed of, him or us? We suddenly heard that an important American client would be calling at the shop this Saturday. Mm -hmm. Colin had to be there. Oh, how conscientious of him. But I'm relieved to hear you have clients of any sort, let alone important American ones. Congratulations. Enjoying yourself so far? It's all right. Nothing terrible's happened, I suppose. Done any swimming? A little. I haven't got round to it yet. What's the water like? Quite cold, really. Oh. Oh, no, no, I take no interest in contemporary politics at all. How wise. <laughs> but you can't opt out of all responsibility for what's happening in your own country. Oh, but I can. I didn't collude in the depreciation of its currency, the spoliation of its countryside, the desecration of its towns, the destruction of its grammar schools, the mutilation of the liturgy of its church. Why should I feel personal responsibility for any of it? I was thinking of aspects some of us see as more important. That our society is more violent, less compassionate, more unequal than it's been since the 19th century. And then there's the National Front. Well, you can't ignore the Front. Indeed, I can. Together with militant tendency, the trots and the rest of the rabble. Oh, you'll be surprised at my capacity for ignoring the ignorable. But you can't just decide to live in another age. Why not? And I very nearly succeed. Yeah, I'm grateful you don't reject modern amenities entirely. I mean, if I should enter into the final process of dying during the next few days and need a little medical help to ease the way, I, I take it you won't object to using the telephone. If any of you decides to die in the next few days, all necessary measures will be taken to ease you on your way. And what happens to this Eden of yours when Adam, solaced with no Eve, finally returns to the dust? Hmm. It would be almost worth marrying and breeding to have a son to follow me here. But sons, even if the process of getting them, deceptively simple physiologically, wasn't so fraught with practical and emotional complications... <laughs> Sons are notoriously unreliable. Mm -hmm. A son might convert the castle to a casino and lay down a nine-hole golf course. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of children, what's the news of your two, Ivo? Mm. Is Matthew still living in that Kennington squat? As we don't communicate, I'm not in a position to say. Angela, on the other hand, writes a filial letter of boring length every month. <laughs> My ex-wife, in case you meant to inquire, is with him in Johannesburg, which she calls Joburg. Darling, I wasn't asking for the family history. <laughs> Weren't you? I rather thought you were.
that was worth hearing. It was very well played. Thank you. He is good, isn't he? Now, how about a song? Oh, Does anyone sing? <laughs> There's a book of songs on the piano. Ashgrove, one of my favourites. Uh, please sing it for us, Miss Gray. Oh, shall I? Oh, come yes. on. Oh, please, please, please. Will you accompany me, Simon? Yes, of course. before the weekend's out, I'm going to bed. Mm. Simon, it's time you called it a day. I'll see you to your room. Cordelia, ring for Tolly, will you, and tell her I'm ready for mm. her. Then come up in 15 minutes. I want to discuss arrangements for tomorrow. Ivo, you're drunk. <sighs> Black marks all round. Mm. We should have realised that we're here to applaud Clarissa's talent, mm. not to demonstrate our own. If you plan a career as secretary companion, Cordelia, you'll have to learn more tact. Are you drunk, Ivo? I shall be sober enough for what I have to do tomorrow. Oh, here you are. I've sent Tolly away so that we can talk. Don't just stand there. Get yourself a chair. Oh, yes, of course. You seem to have enjoyed yourself this evening. Perhaps I should remind you that you were hired as a detective, not an after-dinner entertainer. Well, perhaps if you were honest with them and told them why I'm here, they'd be less likely to treat me as a fellow guest. What good would that do? If you don't mix with them, how can you watch them? Besides, the men like you. I've seen Ivo and Simon looking at you. Don't pretend you don't know it. I hate that kind of sexual coyness. I wasn't trying to pretend anything. Pass me that deep cleanser, would you? Tell me... What do you think of Simon's playing? I'm not really qualified to judge. Obviously, he has talent. Oh, talent! That's common enough. One doesn't invest £9,000 or more in mere talent. <laughs> Can he succeed? That's the question. I'll ask Ambrose after the play. I can't worry about anything till then. I think we should discuss the messages and our plans for the weekend, especially tomorrow. We ought to have spoken earlier. Well, there really hasn't been time. Anyway, you know what you're here for. If there are any more messages, I don't want to know about them. It's vital I get through tomorrow's performance. If I can only get my confidence back, I can face almost anything. Even the knowledge of who's doing this to you? Even that. How many of the people here know about the messages? Well, Tolly... I haven't any secrets from her. I expect Ivo knows nothing happens in the West End he doesn't get to hear about. And Ambrose. 
He was in my dressing room once when a note was pushed under the door. <sighs> Simon doesn't, unless Tolly's told him, and I can't think why she should. How about your cousin? Roma? Oh, she doesn't know, and if she did, she wouldn't care. Tell me about her. It's not much to tell. And what there is is boring. That towel, please, darling. Oh. We are first cousins. My father's younger brother ran off with a barmaid, made a mess of his life, and then he expected Daddy to help him out. And he did. Well, at least as far as Roma was concerned, she was always staying with us, especially after her own father died. Poor little orphan Annie, perpetually miserable and intelligible. She wasn't a bit grateful. Should she have been? Well, I think so. Daddy didn't have to take her in. She could hardly expect him to treat her the same as me, his own child. Ah, yes, children. You know, you should have told me about Tolly's daughter. If I'm to help, I need to know anything that might be relevant. But that isn't relevant. It was all a mistake. Tolly knows that. Everyone knows it. Oh. I suppose Ivor told you. Typical. Can't you see he's sick? He's dying. And he's eaten up with jealousy. He always has been. Jealousy and malice. He could have been a second Tynan. And look at him now, dying on his feet. He'd no right to come here looking as he does. It's like having a death's head at the table. It's indecent. So, Miss Tolgarth couldn't have had anything to do with the notes? Of course not. What an idea. She's devoted to me. If you can't see that, you're not much of a detective. Besides, she can't type. The messages are typed, in case you haven't noticed. All of them? They've always been typed? Even the ones that came when you were playing Lady Macbeth? Yes, I suppose so. It was a long time ago. It wasn't my fault. I didn't kill the child. Anyway, the hospital had no right to phone like that. They knew it was a theatre, that we were in the middle of a performance... Besides, she couldn't have done anything, even if I'd let her go. The child was unconscious. She wouldn't have known her. It's sentimental and morbid, this sitting by the bedside, waiting for people to die. What good does it do? <sighs> and I had three costume changes in the third act. What are you looking like that for? I'm not paying you to judge me. I'm not judging you. I, I wanted to help. But you have to be honest with me. What is it you're really afraid of? Don't you know? Death. That's what I'm afraid of. It isn't the fact of death. It's my death. There was never a time when I didn't see the skull beneath the skin. I knew the facts of death before I knew the facts of life. I mean, no one can say, don't worry, it may never happen. It will happen. To me, I can't describe the fear, how terrible it is. Wave after wave of panic sweeping over me. Sometimes I hold up my hand like this and think, here it is, part of me, warm, living, and one day it'll hang, white and cold and unfeeling and useless. And then it'll rot, and I shall rot 
Now I've told you and you can despise me. I don't despise you. Aren't you afraid of death? It, it doesn't seem reasonable to be afraid of something that's inevitable and universal. Words, just words. All they mean is that you're young and healthy and don't have to think about dying. To lie in cold obstruction and to rot. That was in one of the messages. I know. And there's another to add to the collection. I've been keeping it for you. It came by post to the London flat yesterday morning. You'll find it in the bottom of my jewel case. Over there. No, 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 by the bedside table. On the left. Oh, I have it. It's a beautiful casket. Ambrose gave it to me this morning. A good luck present for the performance tomorrow. I took a fancy to it when I saw it six months ago, but it took a time before he got the message. <laughs> the letter's in a secret drawer. Not so very secret, actually. You better bring it over here. Oh, it's surprisingly heavy, isn't it? Yeah. You press this. Oh, that's neat. Can you see this notice? This is probably the most important notice I ever had. I was playing Hester in Rattigan's The Deep Blue Sea at the Spamouth Playhouse just across the water. That was in 1977, Jubilee year. I wasn't staying here on the island because Ambrose was abroad for a year, something to do with tax, you have to be out of the country for 12 months or something. The theatre's closed now, alas. But they seem to like me. See, Clarissa Lyle triumphs in Rattigan Revival. Yeah. Well, only a small provincial paper, of course, but still. What a nice headline. And is that the letter? Ah, yes. Here you are. A coffin this time. Who must dispatch me? I account this world a tedious theatre, for I must play a part in it against my will. Is that from the Duchess of Malfi? That's right. Not very appropriate. He must be reaching the end of suitable quotations. Perhaps he knows he won't need many more. There's only tomorrow. Perhaps he knows that tomorrow will be the end. been a nostalgic mystery radio presentation i hope you enjoyed this episode please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app also there's a nostalgic mystery radio youtube page for your perusal to subscribe to you can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com i hope you have a blessed day or evening and again thank you for listening